Welcome to episode eight of The Professor and the Hack. Things are really tightening up now, uh, Professor Peter Van Onselen. I'm the Hack, I'm Hugh Remington. G'day, Welcome. Hugh. G'day. Starting to get a little bit like we're uh, seeing a finish line here, Peter. It is, yeah, definitely is. The countdown is on days to go at this point. But what I find most interesting is where the leaders are going now. We've talked about this before, but there's a little bit of showmanship in the weeks ahead of polling day as to where they go because, for example, it's assumed that the margin was widening. The party falling behind doesn't want to visit too many safe seats of their own because they don't want to give the game away that they're out of the contest. Equally, you know, expectations are trying to be managed by the party that's way out in front. So the leaders might still do some visits that perhaps aren't strategic other than for that optics reason. This close to the election, they don't do that. They can't afford to waste the leaders' time on that. So they visit seats that are in play, end of story. And we've seen Bill Shorten visiting very marginal coalition seats and even some of his own with a trip in the last week to Tasmania. Tasmania. To visit Braddon, one of his own seats. I know Labor strategists are worried about Braddon. They tell me they're not worried about Bass anymore, but they are worried about Braddon. Now, equally, Scott Morrison... Well, he hasn't just been spending time in his own marginals, which he has been doing. He's also been visiting Labor marginals. He's been back to Lindsay. He's been over to Cowan when he was in Perth, not just to seats like Swan that he holds on a knife's edge. This tells me what the polls confirm, what the betting agencies do not confirm, which is that this could be very, very tight. But when you talk to both sides, both sides do think Labor falls over the line. The issue is, is that expectation management still from Labor? And then they can say, whoa, we did well, we got 80-plus seats. And equally, is there still a bit of spin from a government that doesn't even in the days out want to be written off? It is interesting, isn't it? Because as happens in every election, this is the point where you get away from the general overview, you know, two-party preferred, 52, 48, 51. You start to look in a granular way, seat by seat, where do they have to win it? And there seem to be some shifts on across the country. It's it's odd. There are. And, you know, the reason uh, for, for people listening, uh, some people would realise this, but the reason you can't keep looking at that macro level of the national two-party result is because, for example, in 1998, John Howard won with 48.9% of the two-party vote, but he still got 80 seats. He won relatively comfortably. On the other side, uh, Bob Hawke won in 1990 with, I believe it was much closer, but he still only had 498 or 49.9% of the two-party vote. But again, he won relatively comfortably because of the sandbagging of seats. So, Hugh, you're absolutely right. It almost doesn't matter anymore what the national vote is. It matters seat by seat. And that's so hard to calculate because of the nature of the minor parties and the preference flows in this election. There's some really interesting stuff in the latest news poll in The Australian where they have published out uh, the primary votes and so on. Mm. And they've gone state by state and they've compared it with the election result back in 2016. As we know, that was a very tight election. Uh, it was a squeak home there for the coalition. But what it shows, we might just go through this a little bit, because one of the things that it shows is that Labor is doing better than it did in 2016. That would indicate that it's on track to win. But it's gone backwards in New South Wales. Fascinating. Yeah, why is that? Well, I think Scott Morrison, even though Malcolm Turnbull was also a New South Welshman, I think Scott Morrison comes across as a more, if you like, parochial 
New South Welshmen, the same way John Howard did in a way. In fact, Liberals have had New South Wales leaders now for a very long time since the days of Menzies as a Victorian founding the party. There's been a dominance there. But Morrison is more in that parochial ilk than someone like the more patrician Malcolm Turnbull. So when he starts talking about the Cronulla Sharks all the time, people yeah. believe him. Yeah, I think he comes across like a more partisan, or parochial is the better word, New South Welshman. Yeah. The other factor, I think, is the New South Wales state election. I think the Labor brand was damaged by Michael Daly and his comments, uh, which he retracted from, the fact that they've now got a caretaker leader because they couldn't even tolerate him staying on as the as the acting leader until the ballot was conducted. That hurt them. Uh, that's a factor. So I think you bring those together and that's an issue. The other thing is the New South Wales Labor machine ran very smoothly in 2016 and there's some issues internally in their campaigning and that probably flows on a little bit. So I think it's it's a multitude of factors, but I do think the first two of those are the most significant. The parochial nature of Scott Morrison, absolutely, uh, and the Michael Daly effect, you know, the damage that was done from that state election. It's funny because for people who live outside Sydney, and there are a lot of them in this wide brown land, it always used to be bloody annoying that you'd hear election after election that, this, that the election would be won or lost in Western Sydney. And you think, well, hang on, what about the rest of us who don't live in Western <laughs> Sydney? Of course, one in ten of the voters in the country are in Western Sydney. Well, this time I don't think the election will be won or lost in this New South is, Wales at all. This is one of the fascinating things. We're mm. not for once, you know, obsessing uh, with, the, uh, with the Western Sydney suburban uh, sprawl, if you like. That's not where it is. But, but let's pause here just for a second because... What it suggests, if these news poll numbers are correct, is that Scott Morrison really does have a prospect of picking up, say, a seat like Lindsay, which is mm-hmm. a Labor seat based on Penrith in Western Sydney. And it also suggests that perhaps Reid, uh, Craig Laundie's seat, which he's retiring from, from politics and which Labor is so desperately keen to get, might not be the pushover. Well, that would be an extraordinary hold, Hugh, the Reid one, because the assumption was that Craig Laundie's personal vote and the historic nature of the seat was such that with him not running... Uh, and where the momentum was that that was a guaranteed Labor pickup. Sam Crosby is a very strong Labor candidate, uh, but if they don't grab that one, particularly with the Liberals siphoning through, what was it, half a dozen people they tried to convince to run for the seat that all told them to go jump before they landed on the lady that they did, uh, that would be an amazing hold for the government. So if New South Wales winds up being tighter a uh, bit more of a draw, if you like, than than might have seemed the case, say, a few months back. Where do you see the big shifts happening? Oh, definitely Queensland and Victoria. And the size of those shifts in those two states, particularly Victoria, will be what decide, I believe, the difference between a minority shortened government and a majority shortened government, and perhaps even a strong majority shortened government, depending on where the expectations are or aren't being managed. Do you... By the line that uh, Victoria is looking not quite as catastrophic for the coalition as might have appeared. No, I don't. I don't actually. We'll see. <laughs> I mean, it's certainly not as catastrophic as it was six months ago or eight months ago, you know, particularly around the time of the coup and in the immediate aftermath of it. Things have tightened considerably since then. But I still think that Liberals are at risk in as many as half a dozen seats in Victoria and, and I would be surprised if Labor didn't pick up four, let's say. Now, to me, the definition of a poor showing for Labor in Victoria would be if they only picked up three. I can't see them not picking up Dunkley and Chisholm. I mean, Dunkley's notionally a Labor seat with the redistribution. Chisholm, the original Liberal who got elected there in 2016, Julia Banks, is not only no longer running but she's canning her party 
uh, and running in an alternative seat somewhere else. So if Labor can't pick up those two seats, then, you know, what's going on? They're not winning government, that's for sure. But if they don't then also get at least two more out of Corangamite, Latrobe, Deacon, Casey, Flinders, and then the outliers like a Higgins uh, or something like that. Higgins could go to the Greens there. Well, could go either way there, yeah, potentially. But if they don't jag at least two of that lot, then they've had a poor performance or they've at least had an underperformance if they only pick up three. But two would really suggest to me that the government's looking like it has half a chance of forming government, albeit probably as a minority as well. And then you look to Queensland and there's something strange going on in Queensland because according to the latest news poll figures, once you get into the, the granular detail, the biggest shift away from the coalition compared with the 2016 election result is actually happening in Queensland. The only problem with that, though, is those are amalgamated figures. So uh, the, the news poll is showing that. You, you're, you're absolutely right. My understanding, though, is that the trend line, if you like, on those figures to get the sample size up just for Queensland uh, is more has more shift than in some of the other states. Um, but, of course the percentages are so low that you can't really put anything So don't on that. trust too much of that because what it says is that uh, there is the two-party preferred shift, we're getting a little technical here, but the two-party preferred shift in Queensland is 4.1%. Mm, which is Worse huge. for the coalition than it was uh, in 2016. Now, they have eight seats on less than 4%. So that would suggest just on those bald figures, if it all works that way, that there is going to be quite a tide going out uh, on the coalition in Queensland. Yeah, what I, what I would say to that is... You have to be cautious, don't you, in Queensland? You, you do have to be... Look, you always have to be cautious in Queensland. That may well happen because I could imagine voters walking in and deciding, you know what, we've got to punish them. And Bill Shorten often gets underestimated writ large, but I think he gets underestimated in Queensland in particular. We saw that with all the assumptions around what would happen in the Longman by-election that never came to fruition and then the Queensland LNP turned on Malcolm Turnbull and he was gone. The only word of caution I'd have about whether that 4% shift in Queensland news poll numbers, whether that comes to fruition or whether it's smaller than that, is that, you know, these are rubbery. I'm, I'm doing this to illustrate the point. But the sort of the first half of that amalgam of those figures was sort of looking 8% and the second half was looking more like 2% and you bring it together to have a big enough sample size to say something meaningful and it lands on four. So be aware of where the trend line in Queensland is. Uh, I think the trend is that since Scott Morrison has come in, They've started to rebuild in Queensland, but maybe not enough to hold seats like Flynn or Dixon uh, or Bonner or Petrie uh, or Ford. Ford. There are so many of these seats up there. That's the fascinating thing about Queensland. And the Liberals in Queensland or the LNP in Queensland, they were the ones that moved against Turnbull. So wouldn't it be ironic uh, if those numbers were right and then a whole plethora of seats eight months on when they injected somebody else into the mix didn't do the job for them, we'll see. What do you think will happen from here in terms of, you know, we've now had both parties have had their launches. What have they got in their hats? What rabbits are still left to be pulled, do you think, that might shift it from here? Or are they, you oh, know, I think that's it from a policy sense. I mean, you know, I might look like a mug uh, as people are listening to this with something having been pulled out of a hat, but... You know, we had the housing uh, loan policy for first home buyers at the Liberal Party launch. That was actually a beat up, can I say? I mean, you know, I've been as much part of it as the next person. We've all been talking about it, but it only affects ten thousand people per year. That's the maximum who can access it, 
and there's 100,000 first home buyers every year. So it's it's a pretty small scheme in the scheme of things. And we see the more that the details get unpicked that, you know, it didn't go to Cabinet, uh, it was sort of put out on the fly, uh, it may or may not have an impact on interest rates going up, uh, it may or may not have an impact on house prices in a way that mitigate against or militates against the value of it or the benefit of it. I guess the only thing that would reduce those sorts of interest rate impacts and so on is the fact that it is only 10000 that well, is that, not that a is big true. Scheme. That is true. And the other thing is, uh, at the end of the day, politically speaking, who cares what its impact? Labor jumped on board so quickly that you can hardly accuse the government of policy on the run. Labor, within a matter of hours, backed the thing. You can't sit there and attack the government for no modelling attached to their policy when in a matter of we hours Labor said, you know it. what, great idea, we support good policy. <laughs> It reminds me, for those with long enough memories to remember when we used to watch uh, with some interest in America's Cup sailing, Mm. uh, that the yacht that's in the lead does this business of tacking to cover the yacht that's trying to challenge from behind. So it's not about who's fastest. It's just as long as you get across the line before the other guy does. Yeah, that's a a good way to put it, I looked at that uh, housing thing by Labor and it reminded me so much of this guy, the other guy's tacked in a particular direction. We're ahead. We're going to take all risk out of this. We'll just tack in the same direction to stay in front of it. That is the perfect way to put it because that is exactly what Labor did. Grant Daniels back, 6 o'clock weeknights. It's the new show where you've got to think fast or you won't last. Let's give it a go. Can you describe Ed Sheeran without saying his name? He's a rangani singer. Not bad. Um, what about Rove McManus? Vertically challenged. How about Grant Daniels? He may or may not host this show. Grant Daniels. Yes! Celebrity Name Game. It's the most fun you can have at 6 o'clock weeknights on Channel 10. Welcome back. You're listening to The Professor and the Hack. I'm the Hack, Hugh Rimmonson. I'm here with uh, Professor Peter Van Onselen. The launch of the Liberal Party. Don't forget the Nationals, Hugh. They technically were part of the launch. They briefly made the backdrop green. Michael McCormick got something like six minutes to talk and then they went back to the Libs. So it was a joint launch. You're quite right. The coalition launch. (laughs) What did you make of it? Oh, look, it was interesting. I was there. uh, And look, it played out well for them but it didn't look that way when you were there, which is an interesting comparison. They probably don't care too much about that because they care about how it played out writ large, but they put it in a room that was too big for the number of people in attendance. Now, they tried to argue, oh, well, we wanted the media to have lots of room up the back. Literally, more than half the room was empty, uh, but for some reason they put it there and hoped that people would only focus on the front half, which is where they stacked all the people in. They didn't have any of their three living ex-Prime Ministers there. You know, Malcolm Turnbull's overseas, John Howard didn't bother when he got back with a bit of jet lag from overseas and Tony Abbott was too busy fighting for his political skin in Warringah so he didn't turn up either. So it was quite different to Labor's launch but that was deliberate, I think. They wanted, And it was on Mother's Day, we should say, which certainly upset some people and not least of which my daughters. So there, there you go. A lot of negatives, it would seem, but... I have to say, it kind of fitted the narrative of Scott Morrison. You know, Labor loves to, you know, give everything bells and whistles and bring it into sort of the context of Labor history as though there's some destiny attached to what they do. And that usually works for them, but it worked for them with Kevin Rudd and Gough Whitlam and Bob Hawke. It hasn't really worked with Bill Shorten because he doesn't seem to cut it with that figure. So it's, it's an odd fit. The Liberals are deliberately trying to contrast with that by making Scott Morrison look more workmanlike and, you know, more sort of just getting on with business and the importance of the economy and a bit of a fear campaign around Labor's taxes. So 
I personally didn't particularly like it when I was there. It felt a bit dour and it had a lot of negatives. But I acknowledge that I think it worked in a political sense. The strategy of how they did it, I think for the nature of the cameras and, you know, the drop-in of that policy uh, around first home buyers and, and government assistance for, for loans or government guarantees, I think it worked for them. You know, it, it gave them the kind of kick that they wanted. It's another sign that they have run, they've played a weak hand pretty well in this campaign. It's basically oh, Scott have. Morrison, not many policies, go negative, you know, uh, don't look triumphalist well, or arrogant at any minute. So yeah, that, that was part of the message, I think, Absolutely, that and I think that they hit that. Now, I have to say this. The, the Labor Party have had a team around Bill Shorten. We've talked about this before, uh, and it's partly because it's got a quality team and it's partly because uh, on top of that, you know, Bill Shorten needs that support. But I would say this. The, the other factor in this is that on the Liberal side, you've only got Scott Morrison but a big shout-out, he'll be too busy to ever hear the shout-out, to the Liberal Party's federal director, Andrew Hurst. Mm. Now, most people would go, Andrew who? Well, Andrew Hurst, I, th- I think he was the deputy chief of staff under Peter Credlin to Tony Abbott. Uh, then he worked in campaign headquarters but not as the federal director at the last election. Yeah, he worked for Tony Abbott. I first encountered him when he was... Mm. Uh, sorry, not for Tony Abbott, for Malcolm Turnbull. Oh, and, when, and when Brendan Turnbull Nelson, was, I think, even before Yeah, that's that. right. He came so with Nelson. Yeah, yeah so he's a... a he's, young man. Yeah, he's, a, he's, he's relatively young as well even now as federal director. But I've got to say, uh, and, and, you know, and I had my doubts as much as anyone when he got the gig because, you know, he'd never sort of been in a state director equivalent or anything like that. He got the job and, boy, you know, win or lose expectations managed or not, whatever happens with what little they had to work with in terms of money, in terms of staffing, in terms of the team around Morrison, him, he's the unsung one that goes with Scott Morrison, who obviously is the face of their campaign. They've got so little to work with, including in a policy sense, uh, but, I, but boy, uh, I think he is the person that as much as Morrison has been crucial to this victory. It's a two-man victory. They've you know, you've got nothing around them. It's just a, a wasteland. But those two together, one on the organisational end, the other is the front man who's turned out to be a very good campaigner, even though I personally find it all a bit vacuous. Uh, they are the reason that the government are still in this and even if they lose, lose far less badly than they might have. It's funny because we're sort of supposed to be professional somewhat at watching all of this sort of stuff. <laughs> we know our own limitations. But uh, I wonder whether we're not being too professional in the sense that I've been thinking about this a little bit like, say, if we were two people critiquing someone who's singing a song and the song is pretty crap, but we're looking <laughs> at the singer and going, you know what, they're doing a really good job with that song. They've really managed the, uh, you know, the difficult high notes and they've built up the drama and they've done it. You know, so that's a good performance by a song. And the ordinary voter out there goes, I don't care how they're singing it, the actual song stinks. Oh, I don't disagree with that. I, I wouldn't be surprised if the, the judgment on election day from voters is that the song stinks. But let me give you another way of putting it. With, you know, in this era of shows like MasterChef, the food that has been laid out in front of Andrew Hurst has been such that what he has created with that is as good as it gets. <laughs> he didn't and have may- any ingredients. Did maybe he? we're all looking at those ingredients going, God, I wouldn't cook with that garbage. <laughs> but he had no choice. A couple and of burgers. He's whipped up something that seems moderately edible. <laughs> 
And that's a fair achievement, but whether it gets them across the line. The other thing which has really <laughs> happened is the sense that there's been a lift in Bill Shorten's approval rating. You know, he's still behind Scott Morrison. I don't know if it was uh, the whole mum thing has flowed through now, but that is a significant increase. It's, I think that helps. It goes you. outside the margin of errors. There has been a significant shift uh, towards Bill Shorten. Uh, that suggests voters are looking at him a little bit more kindly. Why is that? And does it matter? Yeah, I agree with that. I, I do think that that's the reason for the shift, that voters are becoming a little bit kinder to him right at the end. I mean, he's still behind on that latest news poll. He's behind Scott Morrison by, I think, seven points on the better PM rating. But there was a four-point shift, as you say, um, you know, a shift that is of note. Margin of error doesn't explain it. The reason I think that that's happening is because I do think voters are thinking about and planning to change the government and I don't think people like to think that they're sending their vote the way of a loser or someone that they don't like that much. So the Aussie way, we saw this with Tony Abbott actually, his numbers improved considerably right at the death knell even though he'd been deeply unpopular for a very long time. I think when voters start to make up their mind that they're leaning towards electing a new person as Prime Minister, they start to get a little bit more generous about the personal ratings that they might have been quite brutal about before they were making up their minds. And that makes that a good sign for Bill Shorten. So they're imagining him in the job? I think so, yeah. And, you know, in a tight election, the, the shift that we're talking about isn't great enough to, to dismiss the tightness of the election, if I could put it that way. But I do think it's a sign or a positive sign for Labor that people are saying, yep, we've not particularly liked Bill Shorten, even though we've been prepared to put our vote when polled in the Labor column because we're upset at the government or whatever it might be. I think his numbers ticking north a little bit is a sign that, you know what, we are ready to change the government, but we, we need to convince ourselves that we're OK about the guy we're about to make PM. It also seemed to time out with his, uh, his reaction, I suppose, to the Murdoch Press article about his mother and he got emotional, uh, it made him human... Uh, do you think that that has had a, a genuine impact on how people perceive him? I think that's had some impact on the poll and I think it'll probably have a further impact as it starts to sink into people's consciousness come Saturday. Now, one thing also that came out of that, there's been quite a bit of commentary about how uh, the Murdoch press overreached uh, that it's been so obvious in having a crack at uh, Labor at every opportunity and boosting up the coalition that it has learned its uh, irrelevance to the wider market and that this is the peak point has passed for uh, the Murdoch press's influence in Australia. And many cheer that. I know you work for The Australian mm. as a contributing editor at The Australian, which is part of uh, the News Corp stable, and I'm sceptical about it because I think that they are a business and they are capable of shifting, recognising they might have overreached. How, how do you see uh, the lessons that might be learnt within those Murdoch tabloids in particular, but the Australian as well, and what might be, if any, any long-term consequences? Yeah, look, uh, with that, as you've put in appropriate disclaimer or disclosure that I, that I do write for the Oz, uh, I think, look, I... The Australian, I'll start there, I don't always agree with its editorial line, but it is quite open that it's right of centre. But it's also true that it's been considerably harder on Labor this time than perhaps it has been on oppositions previously. 
I would argue, I don't agree with all those elements. I actually think quite a few of Labor's policies are well worth considering and, and that the reform agenda is one that uh, is worthy of, of looking at uh, and, in fact, I would even say necessary around areas like negative gearing, even if the timing and the design of the model is something I, I do have some doubts about. So I don't agree with all the attacks, but the reason or one of the reasons I think that a paper like the Oz goes so hard, apart from the fact that it's unashamedly a campaigning paper and a right-of-centre paper, it editorialises in that direction... I think it's also because this is a big ticket agenda that the shortened opposition is putting forward. And whilst they've been very open about it, the very nature of opposition is that the modelling and so forth and the impact is limited because it has to be because you haven't got the reins of government yet. So I think it almost sees itself as holding them to account where the government had failed to because of its own internal unrest and problems and all the rest of it. Now, you can think that's good or bad, and I I suspect most people, to be frank, probably don't like it rather than like it. I'm in a bit of a bind on this one because one of the things I like about writing for the Oz and writing opinion articles for them is that I get to sort of offer my opinions. Now, a lot of people don't like campaigning newspapers that then come in hard with their opinions. So it's an interesting debate. I'm harder, not just because I write for the Oz, I should clarify, I am harder on some of the tabloid coverage, I have to say. Uh, Partly it's the nature of tabloid headlines. But that example in particular with the Daily Telegraph and Bill Shorten and his mother, uh, I'm very critical of that. Most people are. I mean, Andrew Bolt came out stridently slamming that front page. Uh, Lots of people have. So, you know, I can certainly be tough on that. But I should say this, I understand Labor's frustration because, you know, undoubtedly, I I don't think it's coordinated. It's, It's not a sort of a Borg effort uh, one mind across the News Limited tabloids. But certainly, uh, if you're a Labor politician, you would feel like they're coming at you pretty hard because they have been, you know, they, they have been. And and the first evidence of that, I don't think any of them would deny this, the first evidence of that was the Sunday papers. I, I mentioned this in my package on Channel 10. Every single News Limited Sunday paper editorialised that Scott Morrison should be re-elected. Now, personally, that surprised me a little bit. Because in some states in particular, I would have thought that there was a reason to editorialise in favour of a change of government. I remember, sorry, Hugh, I know I keep talking, but just as a last thing, I think the first article I wrote after the Liberal Party rolled Malcolm Turnbull was that no matter what happens from here, Australians need to teach this government the lesson in defeat that you've got to stop doing this. The same way that the lesson was taught to Labor in 2013, even by people that didn't much like Tony Abbott, they decided to teach the lesson. So I've got a pretty strong view on that. Take back back your democracy and say, we decide he's Prime Minister, you don't get to do this by chopping people down all the time. Yeah, not as much as that. I mean, one is bad enough, but Mm. twice. And John Hewson, you know, a Liberal figure, former leader of the party, and obviously people would say that a bit like Malcolm Fraser, out of office, he has moved a fair bit, you know, towards the left. But he has said that uh, Tony Abbott and Peter Dutton do not deserve to be in the parliament. They do not deserve to be re-elected because of the destroying they did on Malcolm Turnbull. Whether people agree with it or not, uh, you don't have to be on the green left fringes to take a view that 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 was a destructive act. Well, the best thing that saved Labor over the last six years, which has them in a position where they look like they will, we'll see what happens, win this election, was that Rudd and Gillard left. You know, so that animosity was over. Now, Turnbull's left. He left straight away. Abbott 
was looking and is looking to hang around, but voters in Warringah might do the job for the Liberal Party in opposition because the last thing some would say that they need in opposition is him floating around the same way that it suited Labor, even though Gillard left at the election, just like Turnbull has left before this election. Rudd, if he'd been floating around after 2013, you can't tell me that would have created more stability. That would have created instability. So just in the little time left to us here, because, dear listener, I don't want to give you too much. I don't want to bless you with too much of our wisdom. Um, <laughs> let's just imagine a moment, though, that, that Dutton goes... Mm. He's on, what, 1.7-odd percent. Uh, they tell me he's going to win, though, which surprises me. I know. Me, well, well, he's, well, he's had nothing to do but to occasionally gets wheeled out and then everyone shouts at him and he goes back. But he spent the rest of the time fighting for Dixon, mm. doing everything he can. Uh, but then you've got uh, Tony Abbott, obviously, in Warringah, fighting for his life there. He could win there as well. Who knows? Um, there are people in the party reckon that he's come back. He was looking pretty mm. pretty much gone for all money a few weeks ago, but get up a few missteps and so on and that Tony Abbott's looking a little better. But let's just say for the moment that those two figures so much identified with tearing down Tony Abbott, uh, sorry, Malcolm Turnbull, were to leave at this parliament, at this election, because the voters have made that decision for them, uh, what happens to Makes the, it easier for Scott Morrison. Makes it easier for Scott Morrison or whoever is opposition mm. leader... But what happens to the figureheads of the right? Who emerges as the figureheads of the right within the party? I think generational change happens. Uh, I think uh, Angus Taylor, uh, although he's got his own issues. A few bruises. <laughs> um, right? But, you know, maybe in the short term Angus Taylor is a figure. Andrew Hastie over time. I mean, he's still only on the back bench, But, you know, he is part of that hard right. Bit crazy, right? Michael Suker, if he holds on in Deakin, uh, would be another... That's got to be in the mix. Not they massively will... attractive. No, no. Well, but you know that—that's one of the things that moderate liberals might be applauding about the removal of the likes of um, Abbott and Dutton, because really the hard right—it has disproportionate influence in the Liberal Party, both because Liberal Party members are disproportionately hard right compared to Liberal Party voters, and also because the hard right in the parliamentary party have shown a willingness to blow the joint up even when they don't have the numbers. I mean, they didn't have the numbers to even prevent the party room passing the NEG, the National Energy Guarantee, yet half a dozen of them still decided just to be political terrorists. And they've shown a willingness to do that. So to answer your question, Hugh, if you lose two of them, you've lost a third of them because there's just not that many of them. I mean, Kevin Andrews and Eric Abetz, they're, they're... past it now. So I don't see them emerging as the new favourites uh, in the in the parliament if you lose Abbott and Dutton. So, yeah, I think generational change is their best bet. Of all the people in the mix, and this is a longer-term thing, I think it's got to be Andrew Hastie. I mean, you know, he's shown himself to be a bit of a zealot on a few things, but I think it's got to be him because he's the sort of articulate, good-looking... Former know, SAS former officer. Former SAS, he's got all of that. He, if he reined it in just a little bit, Actually, a lot. If he yes. reined it in, if he reined it in a lot, I would see him as a genuine future leader of the Liberal Party. But his problem, and and the same goes for Angus Taylor. Other than his controversies, you know, he's got the same kind of JFK look thing happening, and he's got a you know interesting career background. He's clearly bright, Rhodes Scholar, all the rest of it. But then he just gets into crazy land with some of his policy prescriptions since he's joined the hard right. And yes, he's had controversies as well. So they should be well placed because you've got those two figures, two guys that really fit the mold. The other person. I mean, he would kill me for including him in the hard right, but they'll try to claim him, is someone like Christian Porter. Now, he's not in the hard right. Get up and try to suggest he is. He's not. 
but he is on the right of the party. Uh, so given that Josh Frydenberg, who used to be seen as on the right of the party, kind of tried to sort of crab walk away from them and he got sort of mucked over by them around the National Energy Guarantee as well, let's not forget, I could imagine Christian Porter being adopted by them, but he would be a more rational figure on the conservative right. So hallelujah to that. You know, as long as he holds his seat... Got to survive. He's got to survive. But if he holds his seat, then he sort of becomes a dominant figure of the right... Uh, maybe Josh gravitates to the progressive side as he has been doing as a dominant figure on that side. And then you've got the leader, Scott Morrison, who, if they do well enough, stays on as opposition leader. And do you know what? We didn't mention a single woman's name. Well, that's because there almost aren't any, Hugh, in the, in the Liberal Party. I mean, that should be the first order of business. They'll have a lot of rebuilding to do if they don't win and they've got a lot of, uh, a lot of rebuilding to do if they do win. But uh, mm. we're getting close up on it now. PVO, always great to talk to you, get your insights. Likewise. And don't forget, folks, that uh, on Mighty Network 10, we will have our election coverage this Saturday. We've got uh, PVO. Uh, you've got me, of course. You've got Sam Dastiari, Christopher Pine, Christina Keneally, Waleed, Hamish McDonald. We'll all be there to uh, help. Uh, and we've also got James Stewart as our cephologist who will be looking at those numbers. I'll be working with him as they come in. So we'll On that, those Hugh, numbers. I've got to say this. He is going to be brilliant. You know, people talk about the cephologist who can run through the numbers. He's a gun pollster and he's going to really, I mean, I'm not suggesting the rest of us don't have something to offer. He's really going to give us something. I've positioned uh, myself to sit right next have. to him <laughs> so he can, <laughs> he can number, whisper into my ear. And we've also got this amazing IT technology we've been working on for some time uh, so we can crank those numbers virtually, well, at the very moment we start to get them from the AEC in ways which will put us ahead of the Electoral Commission uh, count. Uh, it's going to be an exciting night. PVO, look forward to seeing you there. Likewise. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. 